Um, speaking of times when I was a youth pastor, one of the fun things we would do is we'd get together uh, usually once or twice a month and have small groups instead of a teaching time. So we'd come together and I would write up these questions related to the series that we were on. So we would have questions related to help students dig deeper and have a conversation around it. And the goal often with the first question, or should I say always, is you wanted to ask a question that everybody would want to answer. Because if you choose to clam up, it's very hard to then jump in later. So you want to make the first question a thing people want to answer. And surprisingly, one of the most effective first questions of a small group is, what's one of your most embarrassing moments? At first, they, get, they start to panic. They turn white or red, uh, and they, they get really nervous. So the instructions were simple. Every small group leader was supposed to tell their story if the conversation lagged, and they would go first often. Uh, and uh, it just helps people loosen up. And so my first story was often uh, a story about my sixth birthday. I had uh, all these friends over, and one in particular that I, I didn't talk to very often, her name was Nika, and that was my first crush. I was really, really into Nika. At six years old, uh, she was just, uh, to me, the, the jewel of homeschool group. Uh, <laughs> and so, you know, like all six-year-old crushes, I never spoke to her. Um, you know, if we sat within 10 feet, I'm like, oh, wow, that was really something today. So when her family was going to come to my birthday party, it was a big deal. Uh, I mean, I thought through my outfit, I was prepared for the day. All my friends come over. They're mostly boys. They got this big ruckus party. My mom set up this. We had the, this unfinished edition that year. And so they, everybody had foam tubes and they were doing sword fights and they divided into armies. Like these boys got creative. I spent the entire day at my birthday party with Nika. We, we talked, we walked around, we did stuff. And, and one of the things that we were doing, we were outside and I was talking to her. I wanted to impress her. So I told her, that, that I could lift a car. Um, the origin of that is I, I saw about a week earlier, my cousin Nicholas did it. We were driving away from my grandma's house. He went up to a, the bumper of a car and he lifted it up. And uh, I guess I didn't think of the fact that Nicholas is like a Kodiak bear. He is so much bigger than me. He's older than me. He's definitely not six. Um, and so he lifted it up. And this girl goes, that's cool, can I see? And at this point, this is when you go, I got to be honest with you. I'm just trying to impress you. I, I can't lift a car. But no, I turned around. I started marching towards my mom's Chevy Malibu. And I backed up to the bumper. And I did what he did. And I don't think the shocks moved. I mean, this thing was as steady as a rock. And so I was left now trying to describe to her what happened. And what I told her was, uh, I forgot to lift weights today. And that was what, like, if I'd hit the gym, I would be warmed up, you know? Like, I would be ready to go. It is my birthday, I forgot. Um, we tell those stories, and embarrassing stories, they serve such a purpose because it helps people uh, open up, helps people relax. I don't know about you, but if I'm needing to get advice, especially if I need to open up deeply about my own life, I am far more comfortable talking to someone who has unparalleled authenticity opposed to unparalleled excellence. I mean, if I, if, if I know someone who's really good at the thing I want to be better at, that is far more intimidating to me than someone who's very real and open and comfortable and vulnerable themselves. It's disarming. You know, this series, we're going to study one particular very disarming 
disciple, the unlikely pick, Peter. Peter is highly recorded in Scripture. There's the disciples, they come into stories, they have moments. Peter is one that we have this vast amount of information about. It's in fact strongly believed that while Mark wrote the Gospel of Mark, that it was written heavily under the tutelage of Peter. If you recall from the book of Acts, Mark and Paul have a falling out. Mark goes and stays with Peter, and he kind of goes to like the, the, the comforting mom of the disciples. Peter was very comforting and nice, so he goes and he's with him, and during that time, Mark writes the Gospel of Mark, which is the base work for two more Gospels. The synoptic Gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John is separate. It's its own thing. But of all of those, Mark started something with that story. And that book and the books written after it are loaded with embarrassing stories about Peter, that Peter let be penned. Peter might have been the one that said, you need to add it. You got to put that thing in there about me betraying Jesus. It's important. You need to put that time that I asked that ridiculous question and was called Satan by Jesus. He was someone that was vulnerable. It's important to understand that because Peter was someone who was okay talking about those flaws. And his flaws are something that's important for us to understand. And we have so much of his story. It starts when he's a young man and a commercial fisherman. We see his life as he grows with Jesus, and he, he grows and fails. He grows and fails again, grows and has to recover. And as he fails forward and grows, we get to the point that the last we hear from him is in his epistles, First and Second Peter, where he's a much older man. He's mature, and he's so different. Just the growth and pattern of this man is something so uh, profound, and it's something I think we really connect with. In his life, he's honest and relatable, and his life lays before us in ink, very present. You see, Peter was deeply loved by early Christians. The site on which he was crucified, that's how he was killed. It's not in the Bible, but it's pretty well recorded in church history. He was crucified, he was killed in Rome, uh, and he requested to be hung upside down. And so he was on the cross upside down because he didn't want to bear the same image as the Lord. And at the site he was killed, Christians would gather there for decades at that site to pray and to weep. And it meant something to them so much that Peter was taken. It was very difficult for them to comprehend. Peter takes an enormous role in John's gospel because John is one of the last books of the New Testament to be written. And John wrote it to Christians who were incredibly sad that Peter was gone. That's why there's so much stuff about Peter in the gospel of John. It's the last letter from the last disciple talking about this great man that everyone loved. What made everybody love Peter and what made Jesus trust him? My hope is that for the next few weeks, as we look at his life, who he was as a person, that we could grow in confidence that we know this man. And we read his stories and we read his epistles, we feel like we understand him a little bit better and that our confidence to read him and interpret him would grow. And that our confidence in ourselves would grow too, because as we look at Peter, we look at ourselves. We look at the guy that's, that, that made a lot of mistakes, who embarrassed himself, who wasn't ready and went in anyway. We see someone who's just like us, and that we would feel confident that the kingdom of heaven is not kitty-gated. Because if it was, Peter would have a problem. So I want to read uh, two separate stories about Peter today that are brief. I want to read uh, one is when Jesus met Peter, or as we can say, when Peter met Jesus. And then I want to read the second story of when he is called. They are not the same. Uh, there's, there's different ways people tell a story. I think it's been a long time since I watched this episode of The Chosen, but I think they have Peter meet Jesus at the shoreline, right, with the fishing scene. 
Uh, if that's the way it is, you can throw that out. That's not how it happened. It's, it's important because in cinematically, it builds up this tension of like amazing meeting and calling. Uh, they're two separate events, and so it may seem anticlimactic, but hey, books are always more anticlimactic than Hollywood plays them out to be. So I want to read the meeting story. There's a day when John, John, excuse me, John the Baptist sees two of his disciples see Jesus, John the Baptist declares who he is, and those two leave and begin to follow and listen to Jesus. Now, they haven't, like, followed, followed him yet. It's like they're just wanting to go. They want to hear. They want to listen. They're excited by what he's saying. Uh, and it's no failure of John the Baptist that his two disciples left. It's, in fact, a great victory. It's what he wanted. And so two of them leave, and uh, the story continues, says this. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who uh, heard what John had said and had followed Jesus uh, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon, which is also Peter, as you recall, and to tell him, we have found the Messiah. This is the Christ, uh, that is the Christ. And uh, it, says, it says, excuse me, and he brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas, which is translated to Peter, and what means the rock. He's prophesied over at the first meeting with him that you are Simon, but uh, you will be called the rock. That's what Peter means, Peter, Petros, Cephas. It's, it's, uh, Cephas is Aramaic. It's what the Jews spoke. Peter is going to be uh, Greek. That's what he would have been called to most disciples that followed him. But it means the rock, which is why all his epistles open with, can you smell what the rock is cooking? Uh, people who know that get it. Everyone else is confused. It's a wrestling term. It's not how it... Don't thumb through the Bible, I'm joking. That's not how they open. Uh, but bear in mind that when this is said to him, he's not being commissioned to go become the rock. He's told I will, that you will be called Cephas. This is who you are going to be. It is he's receiving a foretold vision of who he will become that he'll be a strength to others, he'll be solid, he'll be steady, something you could build something on. And it's notable because Peter is not there. There are two kinds of people in this world. There's the one who, can, who, who pushes pressure down, everything's fine, everything's going to be fine, unexpected things happen, it's fine. And the other one is someone's got the tension right there. And if one more thing goes unexpected today, they're going to commit a hate crime. I mean, it is just right there. Somehow in God, in his immense wisdom, makes it that those two always get married. <laughs> Every marriage has got the one where the person's like, it's fine. The car broke down. We'll make a game of it with the kids. And then the other one sends the suit back when it's not hot enough. They need each other, you know? <laughs> Peter, he's the high-tension type. This is the guy who drew his sword and cut the ear off a temple guard when they tried to arrest Jesus. This is the guy who has a tendency for jumping out of boats when he's too impatient for it to come to shore. He tends to say things that, are, that can be embarrassing at times. He can make mistakes, be impulsive. He has a tendency for living with his foot in his mouth, asking questions that people are too polite or too cautious to ask. To be a solid rock for Christians is remarkable because he is so far from it right now. He's a young man with many foibles and much passion. How often do we think that it is our job to attain the promises God speaks into our life? As if it's a mission, a goal, that God would speak promises into our life, we would, we would believe that things would happen, and now we feel it's our grand crusade to go and take those things. 
And note that it says to Peter, don't go become the rock. Don't go make yourself a rock. He says, you will be called the rock. You will be called Peter. It's an incredible honor for this irrelevant fisherman. The, NBA, or excuse me, the NFL draft takes place every year. Hundreds of players get drafted. The first one to go is the best. They think that person's going to have the greatest impact, and football goes first. And then it goes on for like 270 players. So you get the number one all overall pick. That's his name. No one else has a name except for the last guy. Do you know what they call him? Mr. Irrelevant. That's his nickname. <laughs> Hooray. That's the person everybody says he'll fill out a roster somewhere. Maybe he'll be on special teams for one play in the first game of the season, but let's be honest. He's not going anywhere. He's not going to be anything. And I would say a Galilean fisherman is probably the most furthest Mr. Irrelevant from who could really be part of the kingdom of God you can imagine. Galileans, they were very far from Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the center. It's, it was like that was, was uh, Judah proper. And then it, as, as it breaks out, you would have more remote areas. Galilee is far to the north. Uh, they actually judged people from Galilee. They were seen like hillbillies. In fact, when, when Peter is denying that he knows Jesus, someone spots him because of his accent. Essentially like, we can tell you're a Galilean from the stupid way you're talking. It was remote. And he wouldn't have been one of the uh, people heavily trained in theology. I mean, Jews took theology seriously. Everybody knew uh, a, a lot. They were trained in it. It was their culture. It was who they were. But a fisherman, you couldn't compare them to someone raised in the house of a Pharisee or the high priest's family or these people that one might expect. Peter truly is Mr. Irrelevant. And yet that man, that impulsive Emotions on his sleeves, fisherman, is the one who will stand up on the day of Pentecost. This is when the Holy Spirit is poured out in, into the community, into the church. Power breaks out. The church era begins, and he stands up and gives the sermon as to what's going on and declares the kingdom of God to everyone. I would argue that is the greatest declaration a human has ever been allowed to speak, and it goes to that guy. And he's an incredible leader in the church of all that growth, though, you have to understand something. It comes from one source. It comes from God. Peter didn't make those things happen. He's not commissioned to go do those things. God's presence with him is what made it happen. Gary Poston was a pastor here for uh, years, and he loved this phrase. He would say, he, referring to God, he sees you in the future, and you look a lot better than you look right now. He sees Peter in the future, and he looks a lot better than he looks now. He may not be Cephas now. He might still just be Simon, but he sees him in the future who he will become, and he takes it out of his life and reflects it back to him. This is true of, C of Simon Peter, and it's true of us, that in his future, he was, he was, he was greater, freer. He was more balanced. He's wise. He's whole. He's compassionate, merciful. God has the same kind of changes ahead for us. God speaks life over us. Christ speaks life over us. Not because it's our mission to go attain those things, but because uh, he is trustworthy to bring us to that place. We've read the story where they meet. I want to read the story of the calling. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gisenerit, the people were crowded around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. 
He got into uh, one of the boats uh, that belonged to Simon and asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. It's uh, Peter the fisherman. It's worth it to note that he and his brother Andrew, fishermen by trade, they actually would have uh, had quite a good job. They got paid more than most laborers. It was, uh, it was good work, but it was fierce and it was hard work. As, as they say, though, the work was fierce, but the men were fiercer. Fishermen were written about at this time, and they are exactly what you would expect of a, of a commercial fisherman. They were... Uh, Wooden boats and iron men. It said of fishermen of that time uh, that uh, the strenuousness of the work ruled out the weak and indolent, and they were crude in manner, rough in speech, and rough in their treatment of others. In fact, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, were called the sons of thunder. That is not a Jesus nickname. That's not, that's not like they called down the thunder of the glory of God. That's what they were called before they met Jesus. That's what they were called exclusively before they met Jesus. I don't need to know what these guys were like entirely to get a picture of it from the nickname Sons of Thunder. I would imagine the local tavern owner saw them coming and thought, oh my gosh, we've just finally scraped the blood off the floor from the last fight. You boys eat outside. They were rough and grumble people. It's, uh, it's remarkable that from this group, not from uh, anyone else that the Lord would go to, that something about surviving among rough and, and uh, difficult people is something that Andrew, this guy that can't get enough of John the Baptist, follows Jesus, these brothers that cared, maybe didn't know what to do with their passion, that that place of having to rub shoulders with incredibly difficult fishermen to be tough enough and to be strong enough to stand up to them is just what the church needed in its first generation of leaders that would have the Roman Empire hunting them down. Cleaning nets is something they're doing here, and it's the sweeping up of the day. It's the last thing. Fishermen have always done the same thing. They go out really, really early, so early that it's probably the number one thing that stops people from fishing. And commercial fishermen, they always go out early. Essentially, the nature of a fish is that it only feels like eating when the sun's going up or before the sun goes up, and when it's going down, they like the cool water. So if you want to catch something, don't go midday, or you're just going to be sitting there getting a sunburn. And so... Commercial fishermen, they go in the morning, it's safer than at night, and the bite is better. And so they've been out all morning. It's, it's, it's still morning time, but they've been out since the evening. Uh, Peter says at one point they've been out all night, and that's because to a Jew, before the sun came up, it was all night. I argue that makes more sense than arbitrarily becoming morning at 12 o'clock a.m. That's ridiculous. You want to tell me that one in the morning is less nighttime than 9 p.m.? That's a lie. So they've been out all night, they're tired, they're cleaning their nets, uh, and, and he's, he's teaching the, 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 the truth. It says he's teaching the word and they're listening. I got to say, if you've ever wondered if there's a theological precedence to listening to a Christian podcast while you're working, I give you this passage. This is that part you might see pictures of it. Fishermen are cleaning nets. They're taking inedible fish out, debris that got in, shells that are stuck, they're mending it. And then at the same time, they're listening to what's being said over here. But it's the last task before they go home, and I would imagine that if uh, I had to do a, a day of commercial fishing, fisherman, marine, or whatever you want to call it, I would probably be exhausted, and they were too. And yet this surprise happens of what is going to happen this day, what Jesus asked them to do. The nets are clean. They're done. 
And then he says this to them, starting in verse four. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, master, we've been working all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled to the other partners in their boat uh, to come and to help them. And, uh, and they came and filled their boats uh, so that they began to sink. And when Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were so astonished at the catch of the fish that they had taken And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, uh, you will fish for people. And so they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. It's amazing this this act of obedience, because as I said, the nets take a, a while to clean. It's the final thing of the day. And then you're being told to go back out and throw them back in, starting the day over. Um, And it's not like when these guys got home, they had nothing to do. Work never stopped for people. Uh, Well, actually, for Jews, it stopped once a week, but not during the day. (laughs) It was going to be exhausting. And yet Jesus, who's completely unqualified, by the way, everyone knew he wasn't a fisherman. He tells him to go out, throw the nets in. Peter has every reason to not obey this. We know that, he got, that Jesus, as divine as being God himself, he's omniscient and he knows where he's sending them. But Peter complies, though he disagrees. He says that we've been out all night, we haven't caught anything, but because you say so, we'll go do it. There's this amazing moment. You'd almost expect him to just be amazed as, Lord, what is this or what's going on? But... People are sometimes baffled by what Peter says of, get away from me, I'm a sinful man. He feels unworthy of this call because he understands what he's standing before. This is, this, this is, it's actually a picture exactly how Old Testament theophanies would happen. There would be a great sign, a great miracle. The, the human falls down, says, I'm not worthy. God proclaims peace and then gives them a calling. It's a replaying of these things. As Peter is in the midst of this, he realizes great things are happening. He doesn't feel worthy to be there. And yet we know that Peter was made for this. All of the little things about his personality are going to come together when they're purified, when they're, when they're redeemed, when they're reworked with the Lord that he is made for the calling ahead of him, that he will be better at fishing for people than he was fishing for fish. He was made from the time he was a boy until now. And how often we say things like, I can't go pray for that person. I can't encourage someone else spiritually, or I have no authority to go talk to that person. They're, They're on staff at church, or they're my small group leader. I can't be a lifter of burdens, a healer to the broken, a giver of life to the spirit. It's like we see the work of the kingdom, but we think, I can't go do that. And what I find is interesting is we sound a little bit like Simon Peter, that it isn't I'm incapable or I can't do it. It's I am sinful. I think one of the main things that keeps us from from getting engaged with what God's doing is actually shame. The shame to say, I can't do it. That once I get my things together, If I get my life together, then maybe then I could have eternal value. In Peter's life, it is not together. But he's decided to move on anyway. With a little yes and a big yes. This is just the way. Whenever you find yourself really deep in a commitment, it usually started with a few little yeses before then. 
I go, all right, fine, we'll do this. And okay, okay. And then before you know it, um, you just bought the motorboat or whatever it is that you were afraid you were going to do. But it's a little yes, big yes, yes. I'll trust you with my business. I'll go out there and, and do this weird thing you're saying. And it goes on and on and on until the big yes. Yes, I will follow you anyway. Peter doesn't agree with Jesus casting the nets, but he says yes, and he, goes, he does it anyway. And he doesn't know where he is going to be led, but he leaves it all behind and follows it anyway. You see, Peter, he's known Jesus for some time now. We don't know necessarily how long it was, but this isn't the first time we met. he's met him, and he calls him master. But at this point, when, when he's called, you'll notice he went in the, the first time he refers to Jesus, he says, Master, we can't go out there. The second time after the miracle, he says, Lord, get away from me. The moment that Jesus becomes Lord is deeply transformative for Peter. And it's deeply transformative for us. There's a lot of people that, that, are, that follow Christ because they, they, there's things they like or they, maybe they pick and choose, but something really changes when he becomes your Lord. The book of James refers to Jesus as our only despotes. It's a Greek word that we get the word despot from, meaning that Jesus reigns over your life completely. And I think about this, this, this rough and gruff fisherman, where is he going? And the transformation begins when Jesus isn't a belief. He's not a master. He's not a good teacher. He's got great moral teachings. I like listening to him on my favorite podcast while I clean the nets at the end of the day. But when he becomes the Lord of Peter's life, that is the transformative difference that begins this. And many little yeses have led to this big yes. Peter trusted Jesus with his job, and now he's going to trust him so much that he'll be about the Lord's work. What I find interesting about Peter, and I think this is something that's it's one of the reasons why I wanted to start with this study. And we won't say it every week because it'll be exhausting, and you won't want to hear me say it over and over again. But Peter's got a pattern. And listen to it. Every time, every time we speak, Ryan's going to speak on this in a few weeks. Um, Peter has this way of uh, even if he's not ready, even if he's not perfect, he doesn't have it all together, he just keeps walking forward. He just goes. And, and he may not be quite ready. Honestly, the scene when he jumps out of the boat, I don't know what he thought was going to happen. What was he going to say to Jesus? He just, but he leaps out. He just wants to go. He just wants to be with the Lord. At this moment, he doesn't know where he's going. He leaves everything behind. He has this way of just going forward. Peter might not feel worthy of the call, but he start, starts walking in that direction. And all those little steps, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, leads to a very different Peter. That by the time we read the words of this fisherman in First and Second Peter, we think, who is this guy? You read how kind he is, how merciful he is, how wise he is, and you, and you, read, you read his book and you get, I get why people loved him. In the same way you read Paul's book and you're like, I get why people are kind of afraid of him. <laughs> But Peter is just so incredibly different. And it comes from this lifetime saying, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Because Peter isn't worthy of the call. It's true. You're commissioned uh, not to go make your calling happen. It's not a commissioning. The Lord has something that he is saying that is your future, where he is leading you. You are not called to have your life in perfect order, 
Peter's never was when he chose to move forward. You are simply called to remain with Jesus, to disciple under him, and that all of your little yeses would lead to you taking dramatic steps into your future, that future God sees you in and you look better than you do now. If fishermen uh, made more than laborers, why not switch? You ever wonder that? If, it, if they made more, if they made, like Peter was making better money than Jesus as a carpenter, why not switch? It's because of the massive overhead. The boat, the tackle, the nets, the constant have to repair the nets. It was so expensive that wealthy people uh, had to come together. People pulled together. That's why Zebedee's part of a co-op with them. They like joined forces to, to pay for all of it. And yet Peter leaves it at the shoreline for this moment. He walks away from it. I would imagine for how scary it was for him to walk away from a safe profession that he spent so much money just to get into, that in that moment he felt far more terrified that he would miss out on what God had for him if he didn't leave right then and there. I've heard people talk about this, and it's like they, they almost see Peter as a, it's a crucible. You have to leave everything and go, and there's a lot of stories that tell that story, but I don't think that's this one. I think Peter saw something incredible. He saw what was ahead of him, and it mattered more. As that song we sing all the time, if you turn your eyes to Jesus and look full into his wonderful face, things of this world, they fade strangely dim. We just lose sight of them. I got to tell you, whatever is inside of you that's afraid to say yes, you should know something from the life of Peter, our emotional disciple who's just like us. Everything we lose for sake of all those yeses is massively, massively worth it. And so are our apostle. He's like us. You feel like things might be too big for you, so did he. Fine, keep walking with the Lord. You trusted him with a few little things in your life and you feel like trusting with more, good, keep going. Keep walking where you're going. The difference between you today and the you that God is saying he will make you one day is the time you spend in his presence. That's what changes us. That's what transforms us. So if Jesus says, let me step into your boat and push off from shore, make room. If he says, come and follow me, then go and follow him. Keep saying yes. And these yeses will lead to a spiritual growth and awakening you cannot even fathom. I want to pray for us this morning. Lord, I ask for your, uh, your face to be what we are looking at. We can spend so much time looking at the things we built up and what we want and how afraid we are to lose them if we keep saying yes. Lord, I pray that our vision would switch to just looking at you. God, I pray that if shame and, and, and guilt and the pain of the things that we've done, if they've prevented us from stepping into what you have for us in the kingdom, preventing us from doing the work of God, that your healing hand would come and remind us to not be afraid, keep going. That healing happens in the presence of Jesus. That, that what separates a healthy sheep from an unhealthy one is how close they remain to their shepherd. Lord, I pray that as we do the work, as we stay close to you, as we persevere into your throne room of grace, day after day, that we would be made new and renewed for what's ahead. Lord, I thank you that we don't have to feel like we're completely ready to take one step ahead and that you are just fine and you love the disciples just fine that fail their way forward. 
Lord, I pray that we could be blessed with a kind of close relationship and a loving relationship with you that Peter got to enjoy, that we would find out what is Jesus like after you've really, really screwed up. What does the Father say when you come to him and you, you've lost everything that he's trusted you with? When you have to be corrected again, when you build up again? The way that affects Peter, that when he sees other people that screw up later in life, he's so compassionate and kind with him. And so it's so loving towards those that he cared for. Lord, I pray that we could be transformed in a similar way. And we thank you so much that there's no kitty gate. There's no level of maturity to get going that we can get started as we are today. Give us faith to take a step forward. We thank you for your presence. Be with us this uh, week, Lord. I pray that as we study Peter, we'd feel confident about this man and his life and that we could see him through your eyes. In your name I pray, amen.